Welcome to Manifest Zone, a podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Scott W. I'm Wayne Chang. And I'm Keith Baker. Well, wait, what? Keith, how'd you get here, man? Well, we've been talking uh, for some time, and I love to talk about Eberron. So, you know, pretty much people have to, like, you know, I'll be walking around the streets saying, you want to talk about Eberron? And uh, so he said, do you want to talk about Eberron? And of course I do. So here I am. That's true. That's true. I try to act like I was shocked and surprised, but I am still shocked and surprised in actuality. So uh, a big thank you, Keith, for for being willing to uh, participate in this podcast. Very glad to be here. Yes. So um, I thought it would be good for us to sort of kind of introduce who we are, what we've done with Eberron. Uh, I think for some people or one person, it's going to be really obvious what we've done with Eberron. <laughs> um, and then we'll kind of, yeah. <laughs> and then we'll kind of talk about, um, you know, sort of what this podcast is about and uh, how it came about and so on. So, uh, yeah, Keith, I'll let you go first because you're obviously... Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so I created Eberron in 2003 uh, I came up, it was something that I did come up with for the fantasy setting search. It draws on various aspects of different campaigns I'd run before, but it was something that was sort of created for the fantasy setting search. Um, you know, started as a single page, uh, built into a hundred page document. And then that's something that I sort of worked on and iterated with Chris Perkins, James Wyatt, Bill Slavisek. Um, in the years since I've written six novels set in Eberron and some short stories, a whole bunch of, uh, D&D books and adventures and, uh, you know, a metric ton of, of Q and A's and things like that on my website. Uh, so what can I say? I love me some Eberron. Yeah. And some of those Q and A's are totally invaluable. They're, they're just awesome in terms of diving deep into the setting. So thank you for writing those. You're welcome. Thank you for reading them. Yeah. So Wayne, with your uh, loss of voice, I'm sorry you're you're sick, Wayne, and that your your voice is uh, such as it is, and I'm I'm sorry that you're feeling horrible. Mm. But uh, if you can if you can push through, <laughs> give us I'll a make, few words. I'll make an attempt. Um, so my name's Wayne Jang. I am one of the hosts for Advantaged Insight, and uh, really, I got into Eberron right at the beginning. I wanted to. Play the robot. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's what I wanted. I wanted to play the Warforged. I love the Warforged. Um, for me, um, Eberron is one of my favorite settings. And really, it was an opportunity for me to really talk about the setting and get it more well-known. And I, I believe that there's that huge community out there. So having Christian on the show um, a few times and just basically be able to talk about it and, and bring it to the forefront of people's knowledge. That was my, my big thing. That was my big push. Excellent. And yeah. What about you, Scott? I know that you, you work a little bit on Eberron stuff. Yes. So yeah, I, I also hit Eberron from the beginning, but it was presented. I did, I was a player and it was presented. Ooh, I'll say incorrectly in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as to how Eberron sort of is written. And so didn't really like it. I was just like, okay, I'm going to move on to something else. And I came back to it, reading it and rereading it. I read the books during a lot of commutes on the, on the trains. And I was like, this is a really cool set of ideas. 
but I was just kind of back and forth. Didn't really play it. Um, I fell out with D20 a long time ago, so mm-hmm. wasn't really tracking on that. And then uh, I saw Christian had written the uh, Savage Worlds Guide to Eberron, if you will, and then it just clicked, and I was just like, oh my god, it's perfect setting with the perfect uh, mm-hmm. game system to match it. And yeah, I've been running an Eberron game in Savage Worlds. I'm on my second campaign now, and this one's been going about six months. Nice. Thank you for that, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. awesome. No, so that's, you. I guess, yeah, no, you're welcome. That's that's a great segue into, I guess, my bit. Um, so I've, I've also been playing Eberron. I, actually, I started with 2005, uh, waited about a year, kind of saw what was going on with it. And uh, I was still skeptical at first. And then once I really, like, I, I finally just took the plunge, got the core book, read through it, and I was like, wow, this really is, you know, all the things that I've always wanted to try to do in settings like Greyhawk and such, um, you know, that, that sort of pulp action feel, the noir intrigue and, and so on. Uh, cosmic horror even is, is really well presented there. Um, and then ever since then, I've just been buying, I, I started buying the books as they came out for three, five. Um, once it came, once three, five came to an end, it was also strange timing with like where I had kids and stuff or my first, my daughter was born. Uh, and I didn't have the time in the bandwidth really to run three, five games anymore. And, but then I picked up Savage Worlds, which is a really rules light system. And I was like, Oh my God, this is exactly what I've always wanted to do with Eberron. <laughs> uh, you know, Benny's were just amazing. And, and, you know, just the, the idea of wild dice and wild cards and so on these, these important characters. Uh, it's sort of like what, uh, you know, PC and NPC classes were trying to do, except we had wild cards and extras. Mm-hmm, and I just, yeah, it's, it, it's a, it's a really strangely serendipitous fit. Um, and so I, I got to work on doing a conversion or an adaptation, I should say, for Savage Worlds. And I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. Uh, and over time, I just iterated and changed and updated. And um, I've, I've been loving it since. And, uh, and of course, I've been following Keith's blogs and such, his podcasts and such. And, uh, you know, just eating up every bit of lore that Keith spews out <laughs> over time. So... Well, and I always wish that I could do more, you know, it's all sort of limited uh, in what I can do, you know, while Wizards has it in the vault. Uh, But like I said, I love talking about it. And there's a lot of interesting elements of the setting that, you know, we've never actually been able to sort of delve into in the the published material. And so uh, I always love a chance to dig a little deeper. Yeah, you know, this is this is going to be great. I'm still holding out for a Plains of Eberron, by the way. I really want to write it. I'm just saying uh, my my thing, honestly, is I'm really hopeful that they will at some point um, unlock it for the DMs Guild the way that they've done for Ravenloft, uh, simply because there's a lot of things I would like to write like that that I can understand wouldn't be their top priority uh, as a published book. But, you know, it's sort of uh, with Wizards, you know, they they put out so few books that they have to look at what is the broadest sort of scope of a thing. But looking at things like the planes, like the goblins, you know, there's all these sort of different things that I know there's enough people out there who would be interested that I'd love to do it. Uh, You know, it's just having that opportunity. Yeah. And it seems the DMs Guild, if if they do open it up through that, uh, it's it's sort of poised to support that type of content yeah and the planes are a particularly good example because of all the things in the setting they are one of the things that's been least uh developed 
Right. And I certainly have all my ideas, but I mean, that's what I'm saying is from the books as they stand, you know, you really got to sort of piece together random clues. Uh, and I'd love to have that more concrete. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. All right. So uh, I kind of want to go a little bit into how this podcast came about and then sort of talk about the the scope of it. Um, really, I, I think it came about because three of us, at least, uh, Keith, or, or sorry, uh, Wayne Scott and I, uh, at we had separate conversations about, man, we really should do an Eberron podcast. There seems to be a resurgence of interest, at least, in Eberron. And we're like, wow, we really should do a podcast about this. And I had like these separate conversations with different people. And finally, I was like, all right, hey, guys, we're all interested in doing this. Let's just see if we can put something together. And then on a whim, I was like, let me just see if Keith would be interested in, in, <laughs> in participating. And and again, huge thank you, Keith, for, for being willing. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how these conversations unfold. Uh, so with that in mind, um, kind of going to the scope of the podcast, the idea is that each episode, we're going to dive into a particular theme or topic related to the setting. Uh, we're going to discuss how to use it in a campaign or uh, or an adventure, um, either as a player or as a GM. So as a player, you know, things you want to keep in mind for your character. As a GM, how you can leverage it to add to the story and how you can, how can, you can uh, affect your player characters. Um, character building, like when you're creating that character history in the background. Uh, world building as well. And um, so for this first episode, what we're really going to dive into is uh, sort of a high-level view of Eberron, what it, what makes it a unique setting, and why should GMs consider it as a as an opportunity? Um, does anybody want to take a lead on that and start that off? Well, just to give a, an example, we all know that Eberron is not traditional fantasy. And a lot of times what happens is we introduce the setting, and then people are like, well, where are my, you know, elves with the bows and where are my you know dwarves with the clunky armor like tinker gnomes I, yeah where, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so i think when we talk about what makes everyone unique is the fact that when you start you can't introduce it as a quote-unquote fantasy setting because that brings along a lot of connotations it brings along a lot of baggage to say yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah. One of the things I'd say on that is one of the elements of Eberron for me, uh, there's a lot of, of different sort of core pillars of the setting, and we can talk about all those as we go. You know, the incorporation of magic into civilization, um, the uh, sort of shades of gray uh, look at things. But one of the key points to me is that there's a lot of aspects where it's just where I looked at traditional elements of D&D and said, okay, but but how does that work when you actually think about it? And so the obvious element of that is magic. Magic, arcane magic in the Dungeons and Dragons rules is a very scientific concept. It is reliable. It is repeatable. If I create a spell, I can teach it to you. As of third edition, you know, there were very concrete rules for creating magic items. And part of the question was, why, why doesn't this get integrated into civilization? And But even as a secondary aspect of that, there were things like with the elves, where part of the idea of the elves was saying, as of third edition, you know, elves live 
to be a thousand years old. And just stopping and thinking about that and saying, what is what does that do to a culture and a race? And so when you look at the elves in Eberron, really all of them are about sort of their approach to life and death and the idea that it's very hard for them to let go of things because they live so long. Um, so as I said, at this high level to me, there's a lot of different pieces of Eberron where I sort of looked at a thing that was just kind of hand-waved. Uh, magic just, you know, magic's never been a big part of the setting because it's just not in classic Tolkien fantasy. And said, okay, but what if it was? You know, what if you actually took that and really thought about it and thought about how that would play out if it existed in our world? And so that takes, you know, one of the most important clear points of Eberron is that idea of essentially saying, if we'd had arcane magic in the Renaissance, what might the world look like today? You know, what if we used magic instead of technology? And so trying to have uh, a world that to some degree, even though it's fantasy, it feels like it makes sense, if that makes any sense. No, I, I, I think you're spot on there. Um, there, there. Yeah, there's a logic to it, right? There's a reality that if I have this as a tool, as a resource, or as even as an energy source in some cases, why don't we harness that? Why don't we reuse that? Why don't we make people's lives better, including our own? Um, why don't we make, why don't we build wondrous things? Um, I also think you mentioned earlier about, you know, the races and such, mm -hmm. uh, you made a joke about even tinker gnomes and, mm -hmm. um, I, I do like that in Eberron, there's, um, a logical use for those races. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it makes sense in a lot of ways. I also like that there's just, you know, why do elves have to be archers, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's not nowhere is that, you know, codified anywhere. So why don't we just give them a double bladed scimitar? <laughs> right. Put them on well, horses in a desert, you know, and taking the gnomes an example, because I really like the gnomes uh, in Eberron. Um, and one of the points of the gnomes was saying, well, there's no inherent reason. Like when you look at gnome racial traits, there is nothing about them that says, well, these guys should be tankers. Right. Uh, but what you do say is they're not strong. You know, they're small. They're not strong. Uh, they're quick. They're smart. They have a knack for alchemy. Uh, as of third edition, they have this ability to talk, you know, they have a, a knack for illusions. They have an ability to talk to, uh, rodents and small animals. And so pushing that into a, this is a race that is going to solve its problems through intelligence as opposed to force. And especially going with the sort of image of the gnome illusionist saying they're about misdirection. They're about knowledge and secrets. And the result, I like on two levels. So first, you have this, these, these folks who are, you know, on the surface seem very harmless, but uh, below it are very much deception, assassination, you know, mm -hmm. people you don't want to mess with. Right. Uh, but also a big thing about the gnomes, which then ties into things about Eberron as a whole, are also sort of taking things that are real issues in our world and using the fantasy world as a way to look at them. So one of the big questions of Zalargo is that basic question of how much freedom are we willing to sacrifice in the name of security? And Zalargo is this nation where basically uh, the people have ha completely handed control uh, over to the trust, which is their, you know, essentially NSA, 
uh, and basically said they're totally okay with the fact that they are constantly spied upon uh, and that basically if someone tries to, uh, you know, commit some crime, they will just be summarily uh, taken out by the trust. And to me, it's just one of those interesting things to explore if it's taking to an extreme uh, issues that we have in our world and saying, and what's it like to to be in a place that operates under those parameters. That brings something interesting into view, specifically about, like, I know we're going to bring in t- technology. I mean, it's something that, mm-hmm. sorry. No, no Technology worries. is something that we always talk a lot about in mm-hmm. Eberron. Mm-hmm. And we can bring a lot of, I guess, what you said, real world mm-hmm. views and real world issues in the fact that we have technology now yes it's based on magic instead of mm-hmm. um magic instead of electricity but now we have a world that is set in something that's almost a little more familiar mm-hmm. um and where again we're going to talk about tropes later but where these ideas can be explored in a fantasy setting without you know without trying to pigeonhole or shoehorn them in a different way. And and another thing I'd, I'd jump on just playing out that is that's another key example of um, the dragon-marked houses. And the dragon-marked houses are a part of the magical economy of the world. For anyone not too familiar with the world, uh, these are families that have sort of innate magical talents. And they're a big part of the industrial background of the world. Each family or each house has has sort of uh, mastered a particular piece of the magical economy. And that, straight from the start, was also sort of a reflection on uh, corporate power in our world. And that this sort of balance of power between the dragon-marked houses and the traditional aristocracy and nations was always something I wanted to look at as this sort of interesting you know, what happens when a house ends up having, you know, no nation really has the power to enforce its rule over a house. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I said, these are all sort of different elements. You don't have to make them the focus of your game, but these are things that are issues in our world and that this is a chance to sort of explore them in a very different, you know, it's a fantasy setting, but it's dealing with things that are very relevant to us today. Yeah, I never really yeah, even thought about it like that. But go ahead, Scott. You you uh, coming from a background? Sorry, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, Kristen. Oh, I was just going to say. I know that past conversations that you and I have had, Scott, um, with regards to traditional fantasy and such. I, I know that you sometimes get frustrated with the typical tropes that we see in fantasy settings, um, and I wanted to sort of get from you your your perception of Eberron and, and sort of what sort of makes it unique and and such. Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, and everyone has kind of touched on it. And, and I will say this, you know, the, the general question at the beginning was why, why would a DM or a, sorry, a GM use this? Um, because Eberron is the first published setting that you can read and your, your brain is going to fire on all cylinders because you're not looking at this traditional ho-hum Tolkien-esque setting. You're looking at a setting, you're like, oh, okay, well, what do I want to do? Oh, Zalargo. Oh, okay, I'm going to run a spy versus spy uh, mm-hmm. adventure. Oh, I'm gonna go to Miskat. Or see, I said Miskatonic University. <laughs> I'm, gonna, you know, I'm gonna go to the university <laughs> in Sharn, right? And um, 
I'm going to run Call of Cthulhu or I'm going to run Big mm-hmm. Damn Heroes. Um, you know, for mm-hmm. those people who want to know Eberron, for me, watch the train job of Firefly. And the first adventure mm-hmm. I ran to convince people that Eberron was something is they owned, they, they had their own airship and their first job was getting on to the lightning rail and committing a felony and getting back off the lightning rail. And no one realized until uh, halfway through where they were playing Firefly and Eberron and they nice. just blew their minds. Uh, I will say one of uh, the campaigns I ran that I was very happy with, uh, the initial uh, start of the plot was basically lost. Uh, people on an airship that ends up hitting an airborne manifest zone and stranding them in Lamania. And basically they had a week to figure out how do we get out of here before the planes shift and we're trapped. And again, it was, it was straight up lost of these are people who didn't have a connection, but suddenly we're stranded here. We've got other survivors who all have their own interesting backstories. We have limited resources. We've got to learn to work together. And by the time, you know, three or four adventures later, when they finally get back to Eberron, well, now, you know, they're in Stormreach, but hey, they've been through all this stuff. They have these connections. But as I said, it was straight up lost to dropped into fantasy. So. But it all fits in Eberron. That's Absolutely. you know, yeah. You know, you don't you like you could do it in Forgotten Realms, but you're stretching and you're reaching, and it's not going to feel natural. It's going to feel awkward. But Eberron, it, it's completely natural to the setting. Yeah, you you just blew my mind, Keith. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> That's yeah. Uh, I have to to quickly just just highlight that particular uh, session just for a point, since we know the planes, we don't talk about much. Uh, where essentially it starts off more or less as diehard on an airship. Uh, the, you know, the players are just sort of making small talk, you know, getting to know each other because they're on the ship going to Stormreach. Uh, the ship gets hijacked. They have to, to stop the hijackers. Uh, but then basically the ring goes out and the, it starts to crash because basically they go to Lamania and the elemental just bursts free. Uh, so everyone who survives... Uh, it's the same sort of thing where the ship breaks up uh, and the captain goes to make an inspiring speech. They're in a big canyon and a rock just swoops down and grabs him. And everyone's like, whoa, because they're first level characters, I think, at this point. And I just use the colossal dragon mini for it, you know, and uh, they take a couple shots and you can't sell rock. Uh, and it flies off with the captain. And it is heading just out of the canyon when basically it is snapped up by a, a giant cat that is basically a mile long and just sort of leaps over the canyon, grabs this rock in one, and just, and, you know, it's the Star Destroyer in the, the very beginning of Star Wars, you know, just falling in the shadow. And they're like, oh, oh, we're not, we're not where we thought we were. We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah, and just this sort of concept that in Lamania, you're very, very, very small. You know, not literally because there's ships around, but just compared to the forces at work here. But anyhow. Yeah, and that actually, um, that's, a, that's a really good thing that you touched on because I think the the setting itself and all the, com- all the aspects of it really have uh, unique characteristics that allow, they allow for... A, a, a massive wide array of possibilities for adventures. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I didn't even, I wouldn't even have ever thought of the idea of like, Oh, a manifest zone up in the air. Cause mm-hmm. I always associated mm-hmm. with, you know, like with on land. Well, and the key um, there was, so they couldn't get back to it. So right. that was the point of, well, how do we get, get back? We have to find another path, but yes, exactly. So carry on. 
Oh yeah. So with that in mind, um, I think that inherently lets Ebron be a sort of sandbox mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for GMs and and for players to some extent in terms of you know writing their own stories and their own backgrounds and and uh, you know guiding the direction of the adventure of the story. Um, there's also a really good component of it that there's there are there are certain things in the setting that remain unanswered, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, the obvious one being the Mornland. Um, the cause of the morning. I mean, definitely to me, one of the big things about Eberron from the start was, first off, when I look at a campaign setting, uh, I'm someone who usually does make my own stuff, obviously. And so what I look for from a campaign setting is inspiration as opposed to limitation. I want something that inspires me to create stories, not something that says, well, you can't do that here. And so with Eberron... Eberron isn't a world that has one single story. It's a world that, you know, we tried as much as possible to say there should be a place here somewhere for almost any kind of story you want to tell, whether it's espionage, whether it's grand adventure, whether it's political intrigue, you know, there's somewhere to do that. Um, Tied to that, exactly as you said, to me, what I wanted with the big questions was not simply to say, well, here's the answer to the morning, and now anybody who's read the book knows it, and it's not a mystery. You know, if I play in your game, I know the answers. Whereas instead, we wanted to create a number of things that we say, well, here's something where you can easily think of three or four things that might be, and, you know, that inspires you to come up with your own answers, and that when I play in your game, I don't know what you've decided about the morning. I don't right. know what's going to happen with the mark of death. And I'm very impressed, you know, even down to questions of do the gods exist? And, you know, basically, well, it's really up to you as game master. There's there's arguments for and against, and you get to be the final judge. Um, and I'm very impressed with wizards that they stuck with that because it is so different from things like Forgotten Realms where sort of every element of it is uh, defined. Um, and, uh, so like I said, I really appreciate that they stuck with it and, you know, we have never given a canon answer to the morning. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, and, and then I'll, I'll hand it off to Wayne cause I know Wayne has some thoughts too on this. Um, the, you know, the idea of my Eberron versus your Eberron mm-hmm. versus someone else's Eberron. I think that's, that's a really important part of it. And I, and I, I like you said, uh, I, I do respect that Wizards of the Coast respects that of, of the fans. So, yeah. So Wayne, uh, what are, what are your thoughts on this? When we first start playing Eberron, we wanted the answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, really, we wanted the answers. <laughs> when I'm a, I'm a canon guy. I like, I like to know the canon of a setting. Mm-hmm. So you would be like, I want to bring this book in and I want to know this. You learn not to worry about it later on. But in the beginning, I was like, man, if I ever get my hands on Keith, I'm <laughs> going to find out what, what, what's the meaning of this. What's what's the mark of death? What's mm-hmm. What is the Mornland? Like, um, what's the history behind? Like, I spent hours pouring over books, the things that you wrote, other people wrote. And part of it is the fun mm-hmm. of doing that. Oh, I yeah. believe I had more fun trying to find the answers, trying to piece everything together, trying to figure out what the answers were. I I want to know the answer, but I had so much fun <laughs> trying to get that to match that I think that a lot of people forget that that's the fun of mm-hmm. 
maybe not having a canon or basically just having, does it have to be logical? Can my mind bring that all together? So even though I have you on the mics now, I'm not going to worry about it because obviously I know there is no specific answer, but that was always the fun part of doing that. Not even as a, a GM, but as a player to be like, I'm trying to figure out this setting. Well, and that's always the case when you get to my Q&As and things like that. Of My thing is I can always say, here's what I would do in my campaign. But I always do preface that by saying, but, you know, please feel free to do something different. Uh, to me, the best thing about role-playing games, whatever uh, rules you're using, is that it's a collaborative story. And that basically when you read a novel I wrote or you watch a movie, all you're sort of working with is the author's idea. And that's just the point to me is I can uh, I think the, the biggest example to me was I was running a, a, a sort of murder mystery adventure at one point, uh, sort of two thirds of the way through the group all said, wait a second, you know, let's lay out the clues here. Take a look at this. It's clearly Colonel Mustard. And the thing was, it was actually Miss Scarlet, but the way they had interpreted the clues made perfect sense. It was extremely logical, and I just hadn't seen it that way. Um, so needless to say, I could have just uh, gone ahead, and it would have been Miss Scarlet, and they would have all said, huh, okay, I guess that makes sense. Uh, and instead, I changed it and said, yeah, sure, it's Colonel Mustard. When they found it, they were like, we are the greatest detectives ever. Nice. And as I said, I wouldn't have done that if they had just done a crappy job of investigation. I'd have tried to push them and, you know, get them. But like I said, it was simply that I hadn't looked at the facts in that way. And that's what I love of so often watching a TV show or watching a movie. I'd look at it and say, oh, that doesn't make sense. Why didn't they do it this way? And I love that in role-playing – it can be exactly the movie we want it to be uh, or, you know, the book, uh, everything sort of, sort of clicks, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, I, so going back to, to the idea of like canon, these unanswered questions and, mm -hmm. you know, the original desire that Wayne had, for example, to have these questions answered. Uh, the other aspect of everyone is that there's no, um, even with the novels, right? They're not, mm -hmm. they're not uh, canon. Like mm -hmm. Forgotten Realms. And that um, was, again, a, a big change that I'm glad they stuck with. Because, again, oh, yeah. that was a huge change from Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, where really the novels defined the setting. Right. Or, like, for example, when the new edition comes out, they'll do a meta plot advancement. Right. right. Um, and I know they, they tried to do that with 4E with, like, a two-year jump. And a lot of fans were like, no, you told us from the beginning that there was never going to be a meta plot advancement. And now you're kind of bad. You know, that's one of the reasons why I personally got into Ebron. I'm like, Oh, thank God. I don't have to keep up with it. I I know Ebron, you know, well, and, um, and, and that's exactly it. Just to, to interrupt for a moment, you know, going with the novels, it's back to what I said before. I want novels to be inspiration, not limitation. So again, if you read a novel I wrote and you're like, Oh, I totally want to lift this, or I want to have them go to this place. That's great. But it's not like you're ever going to be wanting to make a story and someone's going to say, well, you can't do that because in novel blank, this happened. Right. And, uh, and there's always somebody who knows those novels more than you do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So where do, where do the rest of you stand on the idea of meta plot and advancement and, and you know, novels being canon? For Eberron? Yeah. Or, or just any setting. But, but let's say Eberron, obviously, because that's what the show's about. Yeah, sure. I mean, negative ghostwriter. I mean, it's like he said, they're really good ideas. And... Um, 
you know, it's just, it's going to break my heart to utter these words, but Eberron wasn't overly popular, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the novels weren't read, which if you're trying to use those as your your overall canon, you're kind of, you're, you're fighting the waterfall upstream, right, so to speak, because your players probably aren't going to know everything that you've read. And it's it's it, it works in your favor to just not worry about it and be able to, like, okay, I want to pick this character out, like maybe throw an NPC in there and make them awesome based on how you read them in the novel and get your party to embrace that. Um, but, yeah, I just I can't see doing it. Well, and I think one of the other important core ideas of Eberron which doesn't fit into every campaign, but it was still one of the basic principles, is I really wanted from the start for this to be a setting in which you felt like your characters are the protagonists of the story. And to some degree, this was a bit of a reaction to Forgotten Realms, where it was so much, you know, Elminster, Drizzt, you know, you had these sort of huge epic NPC characters. And I wanted this to be something we were talking about, sort of pulp adventure, where from the start, even at low levels, you feel like your character is a remarkable individual. And so that's the point, is I wanted to make sure from the start that our characters in the novels weren't, you know, the sort of uh, most important people in the world, as it were. Uh, that you should always feel like, well, your characters get to be, uh, you know, the heroes, as it were. Yeah. Really? No Dritz clones? You give us you give us double scimitars and no Dritz clones? Well, uh, you know, part of it is a lot of the most powerful characters in the setting are intentionally clearly handicapped. You know, that basically it always comes to the, well, why doesn't, you know, Elminster just show up and solve this problem? Uh, and in Eberron, the most powerful spellcasters uh, are either, you know, people like Jayla, who loses most of her power if she leaves Slamekeep, uh, Oelian, who's a tree, and, uh, you know, then beyond that, most of the really powerful characters are not your friend, <laughs> you know, so. Right. I mean, even the Lord of Blades is, you know, he's he he's he's higher level than, say, starting NPCs. Mm-hmm. But you could potentially defeat him. Yeah, and and part of the point of that uh, comes back to the idea of you know, which again we'll talk about uh, at future times, I'm sure, in more depth. But you know, recurring villains, the mm-hmm. idea that Doctor Doom, it's not like the Fantastic Four just gains a couple levels and suddenly they're done with him. It's that we wanted characters like Lord of Blades to be low level enough that you could feel like, oh, he's actually growing in power as you grow in power. Right. And and that these people have stories too. They're not just these static elements that you grow around them. Yeah, I mean, if you think about if you think about Metaplot and other campaign settings, that's the overriding idea. Mm-hmm. And actually, I actually don't think Forgotten Realms is the worst. I think Dragonlance is the hardest one to tell a story because Mm -hmm. it's such an epic campaign that it's one person's campaign. How do you tell a secondary story in Dragonlance? Mm -hmm. And like you said, I mean, you, it's not like you have a magic whistle, call him El Minister over. He's going to solve your problems for you. Like it's, it doesn't happen like that in Eberron where, I guess with fifth edition, it can be a little different, but mm-hmm. when, 
we were de- when you're developing NBCs in third edition, you had to give them class levels, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you can't be like, oh, well, this guy should be this powerful, so he needs to be, you know, 11th level caster, and you're like, well, then he can't cast this spell. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if you had a limitation in terms of the mechanics when you did that. Well, one of the things that was interesting with Eberron in particular is it it latched onto a thing that was in third edition, but hardly ever used, uh, which was the idea of NPC classes. Because that was the thing to me about um, Forgotten Realms is where you get these sort of situations where like the bartender at a tavern is a 10th level fighter. And, you know, having this sort of plethora of high-level PC-class characters makes it hard for first- or second-level PC to actually feel cool in some way. And so with Eberron, you know, we took the point of saying, no, most people in the world are low-level commoners or warriors or experts if they're, they're good at a craft. And um, even the idea of saying most priests, if you go into a temple, are not actually spellcasters. Uh, you know, they are just experts or maybe adepts because what they're there for is to provide spiritual guidance, not necessarily to perform magic. And so even a low-level cleric, uh, you know, you're in no way unique. There are spellcasting clerics out there, but, you know, at the same time, you are somewhat remarkable. Um, and as I said, that was a thing where, well, you know, they put those out there, just not a lot of settings actually really used them. Yeah, I think that's actually another piece that I actually appreciated was that uh, NPC classes are actually easier to run yeah. as well from a GM side. So I, I appreciate it from that perspective as well. And it just comes back to the fact of, again, it's a modern sensibility versus a ancient sensibility, if you will, of also that concept of does the, the king have to be the baddest of badasses, setting aside King Barnell? Uh, because, you know, again, if you look at our world today – it's not like the typical general can beat the crap out of the typical, you know, Delta Force commando. It's he's the leader because he has experience, he has insight, he has, you know, risen up through the ranks, as it were. Um, and so that was sort of part of the thing of a lot of settings had this inherent concept that authority had to mean mechanical power. Right. And, and, and we have enough real world history where you have people who are just born into a position. Right. You know, it's not like, you know, might makes right or anything. It was well, just. And, and going back to the houses, that their position comes from connections. It comes from, right. uh, you know, as you said, uh, bloodline, you know, any number of things. It doesn't have to translate to combat ability. And as, uh, you know, we were saying earlier, I do like the fact, you know, in some of the later settings where they have. Un, you know, decoupled that where you can make an NPC who can cast a particular spell and not have to then make him, uh, you know, a 20th level uh, wizard. So I do appreciate that. So I think this is kind of a good segue into the next part of the conversation where we talk about what Eberron is not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, before we started recording, we talked about like, it's not steampunk, it's not this, it's not that. Um, what are some of the key things, uh, Scott, I'll let you lead. What What are some of the key things for you that Eberron is not? And I know you're pretty passionate about this one, so. <laughs> There's a lot of them, man. Um, are you trying to bait me? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the T word, right? Mm-hmm. It's not Tolkien fantasy. Uh, think, think the sovereign host. I cannot stand Tolkien fantasy. I, I get that it has its place, but it is so tropish and cliche, and it it is done. 
Um, and Eberron is definitely not Tolkien fantasy. It is. Keith had a quote that I heard in a, it was an interview, I think, and I use this to correct people because it's like, oh, Eberron <laughs> is just high fantasy. No, you're wrong. Eberron is, or not high fantasy, sorry, high magic. And I was like, no, it's, right. it's, it's wide magic. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, yep, absolutely. And, uh, and that is definitely, you know, just to, to elaborate on that, uh, for people who don't know it, um, you know, people hear, oh, it's got magic trains and robots and things like that and assume, oh, it's ridiculous over the top, uh, you know, high magic. And part of the point to me is when you look at, Again, Forgotten Realms, you know, not uh, trying to pick on it or anything, but where you have these, you know, 18th and 19th level wizards just around in the world, why aren't, isn't the sort of amazing things you can do with that level of magic should really transform a civilization? And with Eberron, what I wanted to say is actually any character of that level is incredibly rare. Uh, it's more that magic of sort of zero to third level is around and then really is used you know if we have continual flame we're going to light the streets with it if we have whispering wind we're going to use it to make a telegraph um and so it's not that there is you know teleportation is not for example a concrete part of the traditional setting you know again there are still room for magic to be sort of amazing and wonderful but the basic level of it is something that people have incorporated into the world yeah, and and, um, and even touching on the steampunk side, I, I personally get frustrated when people say, "Oh, it's just steampunk." I'm like, "No, it's it's not steampunk. There's no gears. There's no steam. There's, you know, it's not Victorian era. Uh, it's logical use of magic as technology, which we've we've talked about about already in this episode several times." Um, uh, but then I hear other terms thrown out like dungeon punk or magic punk or, you know, things. And I'm just like, stop putting punk on everything. <laughs> like, you know, it, do- it doesn't have to be something punk. You know? Yeah. Um, I think just to touch on that, because that was something that I called out in the one page description of the setting is sort of distinguishing it from things like Arcanum or even Shadowrun. Uh, of saying this isn't a world where there is magic and technology. Because a lot of times in those sort of things, it's about the conflict between magic and technology. And here in Eberron is just saying this is a world where this is the tool people had. Where, you know, arcane magic is the tool they used as the cornerstone of civilization. So what would that look like? And as you said, steampunk often has this sort of over-the-top... Uh, crazy element whereas D and you know eberron was always just saying just look at the spells that exist and like i said uh the sending stones are simply there is the spell whispering wind that sends a message point to point communication and i'm like if you had that that serves the the purpose of a telegraph and you know things like that of saying how would we solve communication medicine war travel if these were the tools available to us and uh, yeah, like that. One of the things I'm fond of saying is it's not just technology and not just technology. It's actually industry. Mm-hmm. Magic has created this industry that people can use. Mm-hmm. It's not high technology. It's not laser guns and rocket ships. It's, the guy with a dragon mark sitting over a table 
you know, arcane marking something because he's the industrial guy that can do it. Mm -hmm. He's the skilled laborer that has an additional gift. Yeah, he's the notary, the public notary. And and that's a really important point that sometimes people miss miss who know the setting. It's one of the things I always call out is for the dragon-marked houses, the actual spell-like ability that can be produced with the dragon mark is less important to the economic domination of the houses than the use of focus items. You know, the idea that for the most part, you need a Lirandar heir to fly an airship. You need a Civis error. You know, it's not that the Civis error is using his mark for every message he sends. It's that the mark lets him use a sending stone. And that it's the fact that these are sort of keys to things like creation forges, you know, to the things that are the industrial tools. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Industry is, is really what it's all about. Yeah, and you're right because dragon marks. When you just look at the dragon mark itself, they look really underpowered. Mm-hmm. But when you realize, oh, these are keys, like you said, exactly. to using these other things, you're like, oh, there's things you can do now because of that dragon mark. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, so, so any other thoughts on what Eberron is not? All right. Cool. So, when we talk about an Eberron campaign or an adventure set in Eberron, what does that mean to you? Who wants to lead off on that one? I certainly can, but you know, I hate to to uh, you know. Well, you're yeah, you're ruled out. We know you can. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I'm just saying. One of you well, guys I'll, take I'll, it. Uh, I'll I'll kick off. I'll kick off. Um, so I, I think I think there's actually like a number of expectations that need to be set when you're as a GM about to run a campaign. Um. You know, there's the obvious things like, you know, what are the themes? You got swashbuckling adventure, you got dark intrigue, you might delve into some cosmic horror, um, you know, all those kinds of things, right? But I think that there's also, um, I think it's chapter nine in the Eberron campaign setting mm-hmm. that talks about like, you know, for example, uh, things don't always end well. Mm-hmm. Right. The villain, you know, the recurring villain that gets away. Um, and, you know, when we say things that don't don't always end well, it's like, yeah, you might, you know, capture the MacGuffin, but then like, you know, your rival comes and steals it out from under you. Right. Or maybe an NPC that's close to you ends up dying, uh, you know, at the end of the adventure or throughout, through the adventure. Right. And And that sort of thing can be very difficult for players who aren't used to it. Uh, right. I will say in the first major adventure I wrote for Eberron, uh, Shadows of the Last War. Uh, The whole idea as I was seeing it is it was building towards a larger arc. Um, And essentially you go through all sorts of trials, you know, get this magic blueprint. And as originally written, basically the Emerald Claw shows up in tremendous force and takes it away from you. And it was entirely the the opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where oh, yeah. it's like, oh, now we're going to, you know, with the idea being, well, dang it, okay, but now we're going to, you know, we've got to go get it back. And now we've got to to dive into the heart of things and solve this problem. Uh, the problem is when you present that to players who don't sort of know what kind of, you know, sort of world they're dealing with, a lot of times players end up feeling like, well, I ought to be able to defeat anything. You know, I ought to at least have a 50-50 chance of winning any fight. Um, And that look at a situation not in the sense of 
this failure is a setup for the story that is to come, but essentially any failure is failure. And so it is a tricky thing that you need to make sure you set expectations with people. Uh, and also when you do set up a situation like that, you know, don't make it feel completely, uh, you know, like completely, oh, this just invalidates everything that we've done. You know, find ways uh, to be able to say things didn't go perfectly, uh, but they're still the thing we can feel good about. Yeah. Or, or even, you know, feeling good about the fact that failure can be an interesting part to the story, right? Well, and, so, you know. and that's exactly it, is, is that was where that was coming from, is the idea of saying, especially when you're dealing with things like noir, uh, that you don't have to get everything right. That the stories, you know, characters are more interesting when they're not perfect and when things don't always go their way. And so it's trying to say, really sort of think of your character as a person and not as this uh, thing that goes well. As a, as a complete aside, uh, s since I'm still waiting for them to unlock Eberron, I've been working on a game called Phoenix Dawn Command. And that is a whole, you know, a whole different topic and a more narrow focus. But one of the things about that game is it really is designed uh, to give players sort of moments of heroic sacrifice and things like that that don't always fit uh, in other games and settings. Right, right. Scott, what do you think? Um, yeah, so I, I kind of addressed this before we got started, but for me, for the Eberron campaign flow or for what when i accept that expectations is i start off with like look we're gonna have an amazing pulp adventure right 1930s two-fisted brawling mm -hmm. magic you know here and there and you're gonna have a good time but you know i'm able to take that and like this campaign as i take that and i want to explore as many of those tropes as possible so i've moved them from a pulp adventure mm -hmm. their next one up is a noir detective story you know, for their patron. And on a side on that, they got offered to do a shadow run on house, house on house violence, essentially, mm -hmm. or, you know, or not really violence, but, you know, espionage. Absolutely. And they, re they refused. I have two gnomes, actually, is how popular gnomes <laughs> in Eberron are. And the one gnome is a member of the trust. And he, you know, he made note like, oh, here's this dude, our Mr. Johnson, who I call the uh, Ear Galifar, is how they introduce himself. <laughs> And um, so they refuse the assignment, and so we move back into the noir. But that refusal is going to come back to haunt them because uh, um, the House Philandrin assumes that the party took part in that shadow run, and right. they're going to come back for him because they want their elven bard back. Right. Um, you know, and they don't know that the party doesn't have it. And so I'm going to introduce that, and then I'm moving them slowly. All this is building to I'm going to rip their their patron away from them through death. And we're going to move directly into a mythos micro campaign based on uh, some Lovecraft stuff. And it's just, I'm going to hit every single one of those in Eberron. So, so real quick to follow on that. And then, and then I want to give Wayne a chance too. Uh, in that case, Scott, did you give the players a heads up that you're going to be hopping from, you know, genre to genre, or is it something that you reveal throughout your campaign? I reveal it through the campaign and I took the cues based on how they made their characters. Um, we have an artificer who believes that Warforged are the, next um manifestation of evolution mm -hmm. and we have a warforged who doesn't understand pain and he's tr like at an emotional level and so he hurts things but he doesn't understand he'll examine them as he's killing them or crushing them and trying to understand like why they're crying when he's choking them or you know <laughs> w w what it means to them when they beg for their lives and he was a soldier 
and we have a gnome who's a journalist, uh, and then we have a gnome who is part of the trust, you know, and both gnomes are dragon marked actually. Uh, and uh, the one just writes for the Sharn Inquisitive because she just wants to be done with that lifestyle, but she uses it to her advantage some days. Uh, and then the last one we have is a changeling uh, mage. And he just, he is the one who was broken by the mourning the most, and he seeks power in order to visit the mourning, the events of the mourning, onto mm -hmm. every other nation to mm -hmm. get even for them. Because all my characters are from... So here's where I've heard, I think I've heard Keith say Siri. My Siri, players is, how, Siri yeah. is how I say it, but I also do, I accept Sire, Kiri, you know, I've, I've heard all sorts of ways. It's just my personal preference. I still maintain that's like Missouri, Missouri. It depends yes. where you're from. Yeah, they voted on Kyre. So Kyre's they were fine. all Kyre refugees and they're, they were rescued by a patron. And so that's how they're doing it. And so that's the cast. And when they made those characters, I realized, okay, so we've got, you know, he's interested in the cults of Kyber, the mm -hmm. mages. I'm like, okay, so there's that. The gnome journalist, she's interested in the Emerald Claw mm -hmm. and wants to actually join them at some point. And I was like, Matt, your cousin is a member of the Trust. That's going to be interesting. So I'm able to really just mold their character designs. And it's like, well, we're going to have a good time with this and snake our way down to Crazyville. I, I have to just quickly uh, drop in to your guy who wants to visit the morning on everything. Uh, the campaign I mentioned before that started off with the sort of lost scenario, uh, one of the characters there was a warlock uh, tied to one of the overlords, uh, you know, the Lords of Dust. Yeah. Uh, where his premise was essentially sooner or later an overlord will be released. My guy, at least, is the the best option we have. You know, he <laughs> may enslave it. everybody or whatever, but he won't just dissolve the world into chaos. You know, we're not really looking forward to this, but you know, frankly, this is our best choice. <laughs> you know, so it was pretty fun. Nice. So how about you, Wayne? So two things. Number one. Kind of going back a little bit. Unfortunately, I love D&D, but D&D doesn't have a fail forward, uh, forward mm -hmm. mechanic. Mm -hmm. So that means when you're talking about, you know, failure <clears throat> leading to somewhere, a lot of D&D players may not be used to that. Exactly. They're not used to that concept of you fail, but something still happens mm -hmm. um you don't die but you know, something bad might happen but it's something that people need to experience mm -hmm. and you need to really prepare people for failing forward mm -hmm. the second thing is social contract when we're playing we don't think about the social contract we're going to have with our players with our gm because a player needs to know that if you take something away from me, it's not intentional or it's not cruel. It's meant to do something. You know, indeed, there's nothing I can't, you can't get that I can't take away from you, knowing that Indiana Jones is going to get his revenge later on. Exactly. But the players need to know from the social contract that they're going to have that chance later on to take it back, to get revenge, to drop the guy down into a pit and, you know, swim away from snakes, whatever it is. No, I completely agree with all of that. And, and that is just a matter of, you know, I think that's also something that uh, just in, 
role playing games in general has really people have had a lot more sort of thought and evolution of it over the last decade or two um but it comes back to the idea of that at least as i like to do things the game master isn't the enemy of the players it is the game master is facilitating an amazing story and you know in a good story things don't always work out you know perfectly and things like that uh but like i said it's not the game master is out to get us the game master is the one who presents challenges and uh sort of you know pushes the story in place but exactly as you said you know it's people understanding that failure that failing forward is possible that failure isn't the end it's just a thing that is going to keep the story moving yeah i think that um I think that pretty much covers everything with regards to an urban campaign or adventure. Um, I, I think there's a bunch of things we can talk about in the future. Like, I mean, one of the big things to me is things like The Last War, where we haven't really touched on that at all. Uh, but it is something that is such a, a part of the starting story and sort of how has this touched you and impacted you. But frankly, I think we could cover that in a whole different thing. Well, and, and, and speaking of, and also because we're, we're uh, getting to the end of the show here, um, we're actually going to make that our second episode, The Last War. I think you're exactly right, Keith, that this is a, that's a fantastic topic to start with. Um, there's a lot that The Last War can impact, whether it's the setting, um, the characters' backstories. I mean, you, we talked earlier about races that live, you know, thousands of years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you have an elf who's, you know, an adult by 100 years old, they probably lived through the entirety of the last war, you know? Well, and, and a big thing, again, I don't want to, to give too much away from next time, but uh, just as you were talking about characters coming from Siri, I love having adventurers come from Siri because to me, it's very much the Firefly scenario of mm -hmm. uh, you'd, where else are you going to go? You yep. know, you're this person with a great set of skills and things like that, but your your country is gone. And so it's a very easy basis for well okay guess you're going to become an adventurer and we'll definitely go into more depth about this this next time but as i say there's a lot of of things that are relevant there yeah absolutely absolutely so tune in for episode two if you want to hear more about the last war and how you can use it in your campaign um gentlemen i want to thank you so much for participating in this conversation uh and um and i guess and, uh, and especially wayne because yeah. i wasn't sure he was going to make it are you still okay wayne Still alive. Still yeah, I, I thought his voice was going to go out, but he uh, he pulled through. He pulled through. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Scott, Wayne, and Keith, especially uh, for, for doing this with us. And um, I'm really excited to, to do episode two with you guys. So for those of you listening, thank you for listening. And uh, tune in for episode two. Have a good night.